I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This is David, and this is your new episode of Bait Slayer, and we're going to do something a little bit different. You're not only going to hear my voice, but you're going to see me. I'm sorry for many of those out there, and everyone has been challenging me to do this on YouTube while you're getting your fill now. So I'm really happy that I have managing partner at Initialize Capital, Gary Tan, with me today. Gary, how are you? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. You are just, in my opinion, just an amazing thinker and an investor and someone that when you think about like what's happening on Twitter and just like the crap that comes into Twitter, I just make sure that I try to kind of really refine on who I'm listening to or who I'm watching and reading. And you were always there. So I'm just going to give you the laurels right off the top of the bat. I'm just going to sing your praises because everyone should actually be following Gary right now. But I think what I would really love to kind of dig into is that there's a lot of different things. And I told you from the set, you know, that I want to have a conversation, you know, not necessarily predicated on bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. I just want to have a chat about what the hell is happening out there. And there's so much different things that are happening right now. There's the political thing, there's COVID, there's obviously things that are happening in technology and funding. So before we get into that, just so anyone who doesn't know you, let's, you know, kind of lead off with that. Tell us about yourself and about your history with Initialized and kind of how that got to the point where it is today and kind of what Initialized is. Yeah, absolutely. So today uh, I'm a venture capitalist. Uh, you know, really like pre-product market fit. So checks of a million to $4 million is really our sweet spot. So there are plenty of people who say they're the ideal post-product market fit um, VC, but I think that um, I actually know a lot more about pre-product market fit. So there's really two phases to every startup. It's uh, the first step is catching lightning in a bottle. And then that's pre-product market fit. And that's my favorite part because you see people who are very, very talented and have an idea and then they start marching in that direction. And then some, sometimes, um, and this is very rare, they catch lightning in a bottle. And then uh, for us, hopefully that happens about you know two thirds of the time actually. Right. And uh, and then that puts people on the right path. You know, we help people get to their Series A. We work with almost every other VC out there. So I don't know. I, my background is like I'm a software engineer, and and then I became a founder. And the most surprising thing to me was, um, you know, coming from a normal sort of you know lower middle class background. Honestly, computers gave me everything in my life, and I would work on this stuff for free. But you know. Little did I know that being into computers would actually be the most highly levered, important thing in society, and um, it pays really well. <laughs> and so, though you know that maybe we can talk about that too. I mean, the, the funniest thing about that is uh, you know the s- smartest, best engineers of a generation. Well, they're all like me now, and we often end up working in finance. All right. So that that's the funniest thing. 
Yeah, that's a good that's a good one because you know I have two kids, and one of the things I've been my nine year old where we were just actually taking a drive this morning, and we were talking about the the Twitter hacker, the sixteen year old oh, that got caught. I feel for that guy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of joked, I said to my son, I said, you know, probably in a year or two or three, when he's legal, he's probably going to wind up the chief security officer for Facebook. Yeah, totally. Or he's such a good systems hacker that maybe he'll be a good founder. And right. so, so I, yeah, I don't want to reach out to that person and just be like, <laughs> you're so talented. You don't have to make money that way. There are so many more ways to make money that you know, are actually helpful for other people. Right. So would you say that, in your opinion, and I think you also are a father too, would you say that for the future that coding is probably just as important, or knowledge of coding and knowing how to do that is just as important to say as the English language? You know, I hope so, and that that's where I'm, you know, betting. But um, I also know that um, at my age, and increasingly, uh, you know, as I get older, I'm not going to be able to tell. Um, because I remember when I was at Stanford studying computer science and wanting to be a CS major, it was my dad who came back and said, "Nope, we're not going to pay your we're not going to pay your tuition unless you're double E." Wow! And this is in two thousand, you know, two thousand, two thousand, nineteen ninety nine. Okay. Um, so you know, having had that experience and you know knowing now in retrospect, it's you know that wasn't the right call. Like being too prescriptive is actually kind of dangerous for your kids. Um, yeah. I'm very careful to act like I know what the future will truly be like. Mm -hmm. I have a, a hunch and I probably really incentivize them to, you know, really get into it. But right. I, you know, it's so hard for us to know and it's easy to project out and say it's definitely going to be the thing. It might be something totally different. It might be quantum computing, right? That's true. Something that looks like a toy today. So would you say that... The ability to be pliable, I, I say pliable, and that could be flexible, pliable. Would you say that that is one of the key indicators when you're looking at a startup and you're looking at a founder, their ability to be pliable? And, you know, in VC, that is the pivot. Would you say that that's one of the more important characteristics? Oh, definitely. I, you know, I'm obviously like growing up a huge fan of Bruce Lee, and he has a whole thing about be like water, right? Yep. It's, um, Water cannot be contained. It will, right. you know, hold, it will enter. It will just move around, right? And um, that's a really powerful idea. Like it's so often people get so rigid in their thinking, and then you know when they're wrong, they're spectacularly wrong. And you know that's when you have billion-dollar companies that uh, you know go to zero. And so, <laughs> being like water is very, very important. I think. So I want to get into a little bit of the news of the day and some of the things that I think are kind of interesting that I would love for you to opine about. So there was a article in CNBC about a day ago, tech IPOs brush aside election concerns as investors seek growth. And so we are obviously on the verge of an election. And as anyone who's watching YouTube, whenever you get that little commercial, if you're not using YouTube Red, you see a Biden commercial, you see a Trump commercial, depending on where you are. And so everyone is aware that we are coming across a very important election now. And so usually, from my understanding and from my experience, the IPO window usually around this time, mid-summer, mid right into the beginning of August, is usually it closes down. It, it's, okay, we're done. We've done all the majority of the IPOs. 
the market's going to be really jittery because we're getting into the election time and we're done. But apparently that's not happening now. And so as an investor, especially as someone who's investing in you know VC in early stage, you are probably cognizant of you know the IPO and the exit windows out there. So I um, would love for you to get you know an opinion on that. Are we in a extraordinary period because of COVID and because of everything that's happened in the markets over the last four months with IPOs? What's happening here that's leading to potentially more IPOs going into a very volatile, potentially, market? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I wish I had the answer, but I wonder, I'm going to show you, oh, I can't screen share, but uh, I tweeted recently, and you could probably drop it in post, um, mm-hmm this GDP and disposable income, personal income graph yep. from Oxford Economics. And uh, for the U.S., um, Q20, 2020, uh, you know, it looks like it's Q1 to Q2. Um, disposable income was up in the United States uh, by like 8% in okay. a quarter, in a single quarter. And you look at the same graph, you know, GDP is down 12, 13% mm-hmm. in the U.S., and then you look at every other, you know, Western economy, Canada, Japan, Australia, France, UK, um, you know, disposable income is down. Right. And so, you know, that plus Robinhood, I wonder, you know, that's my pure, you know, speculation at this point is, um, you know, we've seen this with crypto markets, um, yeah. you know, the bid asks on some of these illiquid securities, you know, they are some of the illiquid to- tokens you could see like not more than a couple hundred grand worth of uh, bid ask. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the order books were like crazy, crazy small. Right. And all it takes is one buyer to come in and blow away the order book. And, you know, suddenly it's FOMO time, right? And yes. um, looking at, t- you know, <laughs> it's funny to see that from like 2017, the madness of the altcoin markets yep. uh, return, but like literally in the public markets. And to see that for Tesla, but, you know, really amazing Kodak. tech company. Yeah. I mean, Kodak is just ridiculous. I mean, that's, that's a scam. I mean, it's unbelievable. Right. And that's the thing that I think, you know, especially for people in digital assets, you know, and by the way, I would love to get your opinion on this. We're really trying to move the narrative to digital assets away from crypto. And I'd love for you to opine about that. But yeah, that's a, that's a great point is that everyone was like, oh, Kodak, oh, boom, fine. No problem whatsoever. But all of us, you know, in digital assets from like 17 are like, um, Wait a second. That feels yeah, totally. That, re- that reminds us of some stuff. There's some pump groups going on. <laughs> Seriously. And so, you know, as we're, I guess you just shifted into digital assets and we'll talk about that right now. So, you know, I would love to hear kind of your thoughts. Uh, you know, you are early in some, you know, pretty big companies in the space. Uh, you know, obviously an investor in Coinbase, which has become. I believe they're actually going to try to IPO in the next six months or so, based on some of the things that are coming out of the camp there. What do you see? Cannot confirm or deny. <laughs> I know, I know, you can't confirm or deny, but it is actually out there. It's public record. There was, you know, some reporting saying that they were going to try to do that. Um, so, would love to get your opinion. You know, you've seen it from early on. Initialize was actually getting into this space, you know, fairly early on in the last two, three years or so. What do you see as a maturation right now? As a lot of investors, especially people who are listening to the show, are trying to get a grasp on what's happening. I had spoke with a family office just today, and he said, you know, two years ago, forget about it. Not even a chance. You know, the supply and demand curve were completely not in favor of what he would, you know, feel comfortable with. 
Um, and so now he is seeing the institutionalization of digital assets. He's seen fidelity. He's seen the you know Coinbase. Obviously, he's seen more regulated you know type of product come into the into the foray. As someone who's been in this for a while, who's been digesting a lot of the companies out there, what do you see in terms of the maturation? What kind of narratives are you getting excited about in this space? Yeah, I mean, we've been a lot less active, especially on the token side. We've never been hyperactive on the token side, um, but we've been sort of looking for things that are sort of more similar to the Coinbase stories, you know, picks and shovels. And the funniest thing is, you know, we are we have always been generalist VCs. You know, crypto has never really been more than maybe 10% of what we've done. And, uh, it, you know, sticking with Delaware C-Corps that have um, revenue actually make a lot of sense for us um, and our structure. But it also allows us to evaluate them basically using the same um, criteria at the end mm-hmm. of the day. You know, what's the discounted cash flow on, you know, for Cointracker, for instance, which we think has a strong shot at being the way people do taxes uh, for all of their crypto holdings. You know, that's... Uh, very, very long dated call option on how awesome crypto will be in the next 10 to 20 years. And so mm-hmm. for me, that's an extremely strong product team, a strong engineering team that is crypto converted and has basically long duration. And that's sort of what it takes to be able to um, be in the market and win. Um, right. Yeah. And that's you know, coming out of 2017, that was really, really clear to me. You know, all of the fly by night people. Um, the pump groups and sort of the mass speculation, um, you know, that's still there. The probably the you know, it, I wonder how much of it was is now mainly sustained by, you know, the the big sort of windfalls that some of the people in that space, you know, basically took at mm-hmm. the at the hands of the you know the public, you know, our right. Uber taxi drivers and people like that, sort of having a hot tip. Um, I think that that industry will continue. And uh, they're also hoping for rehydration. And right. so I, I, I think that we've always had a very deep interest in what are the teams that are making products and software that will be super long enduring. Um, and then the long-term view for us is that you know, Bitcoin will be fundamentally valuable. Um, I, I personally think Ethereum will be extremely valuable because of developer mindshare. But mm-hmm. you know, that's we're many years into that debate and it's still being right. raged day to day. Yes. Um, but I'm a believer. And so um, those things matter. It's like, where's the mindshare? And right. what, did, what did developers care about? And then beyond that, will there be practical use cases? So in terms of practical use cases, and so we'll talk about this, so decentralized finance, open finance, whatever the specific meme is that you are using this day that you're listening to the show, uh, the, the statistics are pretty astounding. So the total value locked was about $830 million at the end of April. And now uh, this week alone, it went up to $4 billion, And that's in a, a three-month period. Yeah. And so... Do you, as you are evaluating, are you seeing, and this is a very specific use case, we're, we're talking about disintermediating finance where you have loans and borrowing, software you know, the finance, UI and sure. UI. Yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, what I want is when we may be close to this, um, my open question is when will this actually rival or replace, you know, having to go down and use a traditional bank, mm. um, you know, it's funny because you know, for a time, Robinhood and Coinbase were sort of mentioned in the same sentence. 
And that narrative has gone away a little bit, but right. it'll be interesting to see that return because they are, for now, they're ostensibly on different paths, but you know these things can and will converge again when you talk about software eating finance. Um, what's the difference between a centralized app and a totally decentralized version? Um, right. I think that will return in the next five or 10 years. When's the last um, time you went to the bank? Year, I mean years, so. <laughs> Right. And you're probably running everything, you know, obviously OPSEC, you know, we're not going to get into specifics, but most of the things are mobile devices these days. Yeah, totally. DeFi is so interesting because I actually think um, it's going to continue to explode as people feel more and more comfortable about counterparty risk. Because Mm -hmm. when you throw these things in here, you're actually saying, you know, the contract's not going to get hacked and, you know, the intermediaries are going to be trustworthy and not hacked. Um, And so I, I think that that's just a matter of time, actually. Like as people feel more and more comfortable, right. um, there will be a continued inflow of um, of activity and capital. So one of the interesting areas that I've looked at, and one of the things that we've looked at, is this marriage of digital assets, blockchain, distributed and decentralized architecture, and what's happening with COVID. And so, what kind of Cambrian explosion of innovation are we going to start seeing? And one of the things, you know, two of the areas that we've looked at is in terms of contactless payments, but also in terms of this idea of marrying some sort of proof of immunity with mobile devices. And as I know, you guys are obviously very active with Row. And anyone who does not know about Row, check it out. I remember when COVID was starting, the founders moved very fast. And again, this is pivoting. They moved very fast to open up a ability for people to start screening themselves. And if they felt that they were concerned that they were in contact with someone who had COVID, they would be able to follow a few different steps and connect with a registered nurse or a doctor. And it was awesome. Um, I think it was it was really, really innovative. And again, this is something that just came on the fly. They pivoted really fast. They were able to develop it. And so do you think COVID has created this kind of Cambrian explosion of innovation that we're going to start seeing iterations around this like that? Oh, no question. I mean, the telemedicine space broadly is just a massive macro shift right now. Because um, what's happening is people aren't going in to see their doctor anymore for all non-essential things. So the only way to do it is telemedicine. And then the health plans are actually, uh, so the payers actually have a requirement to pay out 75% of their budget um, to real treatments. So there's a real contractual obligation for them to do that. And then on the provider health plan side, uh, hospitals and providers are actually, they're about to go out of business across the board, which is kind of mad if you think about it in, in context of we're in the middle of a pandemic we need them more than ever mm-hmm. but if you look at hospitals they're struggling to keep their nurses they want to keep their their staff and so we're seeing this one-time shift of um, the providers that would have taken years and years um, to actually have any even you know to get the enterprise approval from a ceo to go forward from a health plan it just never would happen but now it's happening within the course of weeks Right. And so, you know, this will be the year for telemedicine massively. And that's, you know, both Roe and for um, TruePill, actually. It's, we uh, ended up having two uh, different companies in, in that fund, like funded actually within months of each other that at the moment we had no idea. Like we didn't have a specific um, thesis around telemedicine per se. But, you know, again, going back to every startup is a 10-year overnight success. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> 
you know, what, what founders end up coming and teaching us is, um, you know, they, they vote with their feet. Like they right. kind of find these opportunities and just quit their jobs and go work on it. Do you think this lasts? Do you think this, this idea of us not going to a doctor unless it's something's fallen off, do you think that's going to last through COVID? I think so, honestly, because um, it's just, I think people are going to be somewhat reticent to go back to their old lives. You know, it's, um, it's strange to say, but there is something very comforting about this new life. <laughs> it's uh, very family oriented for some people. Um, but, you know, then again, uh, you and I are definitely uh, a part of the very, very um, privileged class. You know, we are able to be uh, at home with our families and we are knowledge workers. So we get to you know, spend all of our time thinking about ideas and a great portion of the population doesn't get to do that. So right. I am mindful of that too. That's a, that's a great point. It is actually a spectacular point. And as you think through the rest of 2020 and you start preparing for 2021, I'm sure you're already doing that with your team. Aside from telemedicine and aside from digital assets, what else are you starting to think about? Yeah, I mean, it's almost kind of stupid boring because it's so, we, we've no been on this trend for so long. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're just finding that there are large parts of the economy that don't have software. And it's like, they're still making, you know, literally picking up the phone or sending an email. And all of those things are going to go from totally unstructured data with like no pricing transparency. It's like opaque, opaque pricing, high margin, you know, I mean, I think about it as almost, um, these are things that are sold with, uh, you know, handshakes and steaks. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, all of those things will actually sort of evolve and um, it's good in some sense because, um, frankly, all of the things that we lo know and love, they'll get you know cheap, better, faster, and cheaper. Right. Um, but it's also you know sort of the classic disruption. Like there are going to be fewer jobs in some sense. Um, you know, robotics will continue to come on board. We, I mean, we we're actually really interested in that because robotics have supposed to be they're supposed to be around the corner forever and. Every almost every Sandhill firm has lost, you know, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars on yep. those attempts. Um, I think that you know this decade might actually be the one because you know if you look at Nvidia, at, you know, Jetson TX2 architecture, being able to do you know real time computer vision, uh, doing real identification, like computers can literally see with commodity hardware from Nvidia that cost less than a thousand dollars. Like that yep. was never possible before. Like you used to have a, you needed a supercomputer, right? Right. Yeah. You know, three years ago, we started seeing it as, you know, the NVIDIA, you know, 1080 TIs, like those things could do like 1080p real-time video. And that mm -hmm. was a really big deal three years ago. Now that same package is less than a thousand dollars, sometimes four or $500. Wow. That's, so, that's amazing. I'm like, okay, you know, I can start expecting there to be fleets of thousands of robots out there doing deliveries, like, you know, pulling weeds, um, mm -hmm. you know, mowing lawns. Like, I, you know, this is the time to start seeing that. Um, and then if anything, we, what, you know, what, we, what you see with the meal kit space is this crazy, like, just fallen out of favor. You know, nobody wants to invest in that. Like, robotics yep. is there as well. It's been like that for years. Um, I think the next two to three years will be the moment where people find these are actually use cases that are positive gross margin. They can finance the actual hardware. Mm -hmm. it's, um, and then the difficulty is, and the scary thing to me is that 
the bar for whether or not it works will actually be um, how many people does this displace on a workforce. So thinking, going futuristic and, you know, Let's have a little fun with this. So one of the things that I've always been, you know, not always, I shouldn't say that. Well, the last five months since we've been kind of in this quarantine period, this idea of you and I interacting on Zoom like that is great. It's fun. But as this continues on, I'm thinking of ways, you know, whether it's, you know, the kind of the magic leap type of way or it's AR, VR, I'm thinking that in terms of your thesis about robotics, obviously having taken off, I'm thinking that this is probably going to get a little stale and that we're going to want to find new ways to do this. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd sign up for it. <laughs> Let's try it out, right? Wasn't there that movie with Bruce Willis? Was it um, Surrogates? Yep. <laughs> Surrogates was the movie where that actually played out, where you, know, you don't actually walk around. You're actually you know, in, in this other body, that, this robotic body, I guess. Yep. So yeah, I, it's I possible. Think that- what about Might be farther out, farther out? Yeah, farther out. <laughs> One thing that is actually now, what I would love for you to opine about is GPT three. Oh, I think it's super interesting. Um, and for those that don't know about it, why don't you tell them about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, OpenAI has been working on uh, text generation for quite some time, and you know, I think it's been kind of eye opening for the whole space because there's this uh, sense that. What OpenAI was doing was just taking tens, if not you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Azure credits and just dumping it in these models that um, we knew about, right? Mm-hmm. And what I think they're proving is that you know, spending $15, $20 million on a model can actually result in sort of a quantum leap in you know, use case and usability. Right. And then I'm kind of curious to see what, what Facebook and Google and Amazon and sort of the tech giants do because OpenAI is sort of the only lab that I can think of right now that has access to that amount of money uh, that is also doing it. And, you know, there is going to be a, a Cambrian explosion of startups that are sort of built on top of it. And the tricky thing is uh, OpenAI is now a, um, it may be public benefit, but it's still a corporation now. So they're mm-hmm. going to try and extract as much rent as possible. And, you know, I, I think it's sort of a brilliant move by OpenAI broadly. Do you think, you know, some of the expressions I've seen of this is that it can replace, for instance, people that are reporters and those that are, you know, writing news and clips and stuff like that. Do you think that they get displaced by this? I don't really think so, uh, but that's just my my whole bias is that computers are incredibly great at data, but you know philosophically we sort of go back to you know Cyril's problem of you know sort of the the Chinese room problem. It's you know just because you have an intricate machine that seems like it speaks you know Chinese or English or speaks like real language, like is there understanding and is there meaning? Right. And you know the thing that I know. And maybe this is, I, I've been accused of being um, very humanist and, you know, it, it, it's like kind of like being racist, but like really, really in favor of like humans. <laughs> I don't know. Speciesist, right. Sorry. Speciesist wow. is what people have called me. But I've I am, never heard that phrase. <laughs> I'm, call me a humanist or a speciesist all you want. Like I believe in um, really deeply in 
the power of humanity and you know the human experience it's a singular experience that um i think cannot be replicated probably won't be um and you know when you read the output of gpt3 um the magic is actually happening in your brain it's not ha- i mean the rest is like tens of millions of dollars on azure credits right like this is like um, you know the super reductionist view is like the model is a bunch of matrix math right, right. and you know, that's not fair to that technology on some extent but you know in a mechanical sense it's true like this is the output of a very complex system that costs a lot of money right. but there's not like you're creating the meaning in your head and that's what's that's the remarkable thing is like oh like it, you can kind of follow it right right and to be honest with you, you know, there's even, a, you know, this has been going on for a few years now. Some of the things that you might be reading, like if you're reading a quick, you know, three or four paragraphs on your favorite sports team on ESPN or some sort of a blog or something like that out there, it could have actually been generated already. It might not have been human. It might have already actually been generated. So Yeah, I think they've been doing that for a while. It's- yeah, it's been going on for a while. So I, I think... I, I definitely think the application is really amazing. And as it relates to the world of digital assets and the world of AI, I'm very interested as, as it gets to, we're moving more to DAOs and we're moving more to autonomous governance. And oh, I, I love see, that idea. Yeah. I can't yeah. wait to see it. Yeah, I think we're, 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 we'll see that soon because, you know, moving to this idea of more decentralized and distributed and you know, obviously kind of the human element and making it, you know, more, harmonious and fair, if you will, and having AI kind of making those decisions, I think will be something that we see soon. So before I let you go, and I know we've had a great conversation, we've been all over the place, but I really love this. There are two things I always ask for, you know, a guest before they get to go is if anything you've read recently, I don't know if you had a chance to read, I thought that, you know, during quarantine, I was going to be reading a stack of books, everyone obviously tries to do 50 books a year. Yeah, you know, no, that hasn't happened at all. Um, I'm trying to read again, though. Um, and so anything that you've read recently, it could be a book, it could be a blog, it could be anything out there, and then any music that you like. So you can start with the music first. Music's pretty easy, and hopefully it's more than just a Spotify list, because everyone says a Spotify list these days. Any music that you like, and then anything you've read. Let's see. I just bought a ton of books, and I'm, like, working through it right now. Um are you of the approach where you read simultaneously five or six books at the same time? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, what I realized is like the second I got my first money, I, you know, now have this policy where the second I hear about a book I want to read, I just buy it on the spot. And, you know, to me, that is, uh, I read the samples. That is first. true wealth, honestly. I read the samples. <laughs> right. I read the samples to make sure. And then I usually, and then my wife is like, you bought another book. I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to, you know, I, I wasn't the most studious person in college. I will admit that. So as I have now ventured into this world of venture and digital assets, you know, this is, you know, you got to be, you got to read. You got to read, yeah, read, absolutely. read. Um, I guess I've been reading sort of an old standby leadership book, 20, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And um, okay kind of an oldie but a goodie honestly i mean i i'm kind of um really love these super classic books because um they sort of stand you know the reason why we're reading them today is that they sort of stand the test of time i mean the other one that i find myself recommending to people who are very young all the time is you know how to win friends and influence people 
Mm. And it's, you know, horrible title and like feels very dated and, you know, it's very manipulative on the, on, on the one hand. But I like to think about, shoot, like this was written in sort of the 20s. I mean, this was a real yep. era of extreme need. And, you know, someone, for someone to put together that book to try to actually legitimately help people um, navigate modern society and modern society, the rules of that were being written now. And now that that's like sort of water. So yep. I like the historical aspect of like, you know, the twenties was yeah, twenties and thirties. I mean, thirties were like insane. Yep. <laughs> this, this was the book that helped people That's make businesses book. and survive. That's a great book um, to recommend. Yeah, and then music. So, yeah, let's let's hear music. There's got to be something good here. Come on. Oh man, you know I shoot. The hard part is I, you know, I have two kids. You know, a no. one year old now. So it's like, unfortunately, my number one thing is like white noise <laughs> but you know I, honestly um okay i've been listening to a lot of mac miller like his last mm-hmm. album circles you know i think that um he's really kind of a very very brilliant musician who died of a drug overdose recently and you know um i think i think about him a lot because um i wonder how you know how alone was he and you know he was so far along in the things that society tells you you need, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's fame or money or famous friends and things like that. And uh, I, you know, you listen to his music and it's very soulful. It's incredibly deep. And um, I just wonder, you know, all of the things that society tells you uh, you need to be whole, like yep. they don't nourish your soul at all. And, you know, that's, that's what that album is to me. Um, it's choice. a reminder and uh, really, really powerful. Good, good, good pick. Not a, here's my Spotify list that I'm using that's been auto-generated because that's been happening all the time lately, which has been like, come on, guys. Let's, let, 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 let's listen to some good stuff here. You know, someone was yeah. like, yeah, I'm listening to, uh, to uh, Thelonious Monk. I'm like, okay, that's... Yeah, that's legit. That's yeah, some legit that stuff brilliant. there. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. That's some good stuff. Where can Luno people jazz, classic. where can people kind of connect with you and find out more about what you guys are doing in Initialized? Oh man. So Initialized is easy. Initialized.com. Find us on Twitter at Initialized. And then for me, I'm on, you know, Twitter and Instagram. My DMs are actually open on Instagram. Nice. So especially for founders or um yeah, actually it's been really just cool to talk to people about like their career and what they want to do and um you know, my inbox, my calendar, all of those things are completely out of control. And then Instagram actually is just this cool place to chat with people about, you know, where they're at, right? And I, uh, I can just always that. dip in and try to help people. And it, it feels like everyone tries to dip into your calendar and get, yep. you know, can I email you a deck? I'm like, whoa, well, let's just, let's just have the a conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm like, that's my work stuff. This is my, like, trying to be a human being part. And so open open Instagram DMs. And it's actually helped me put my life and the things I want to do much more into perspective um, by helping other people, hopefully. Very cool. Gary, just awesome catching up with you. And hopefully you guys stay safe out there. Keep on keeping on with everything you're doing there. You guys are really doing some great work and sponsoring and helping and building some really amazing companies, especially in this very hard time. Gary, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Be well. You too. 
Thanks for listening in to Base Layer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.